Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. My name's Paul McGough. I'm a partner in the healthcare regulatory team. And in this episode, I'm talking to Helen Kingston about the government's proposed amendments to the Mental Health Act set out in the recently published white paper. Hi, I'm Helen Kingston and I'm a consultant with DACB. So we're going to approach this by talking through six proposed areas of reform in the white paper that strike us as particularly significant. And Helen, do you want to kick us off with the proposals around the detention criteria? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So um, clearly one of the focuses of the white paper is to reduce the amount of detention and the length of time that people are detained for in hospital. So to do this, a couple of amendments suggested. So firstly, in terms of the mental disorder definition itself, which obviously is a pretty broad definition generally. So the plan being that autism and learning disability will be removed from effectively the definition of uh, mental disorder for Section 3 purposes, or rather that would be the effect, as I understand it, the amendment. So that wouldn't mean that somebody with autism and learning disability couldn't be detained under Section 2 or under the forensic provisions. But what it will do is kind of continue, if you like, that push to make sure that people with LD and autism are safely provided with care in the community rather than having to be in hospital setting. And that's linked as well to the new requirements, probably on the local authorities and CCGs, to ensure that there is adequate community services in place for autism and LD. The other significant issue is the tightening of the detention criteria. So the Section 2, Section 3 and CTO criteria will be tightened up. So there'll be an added significant harm test uh, and a therapeutic benefit test. Again, the forensic provisions aren't affected. So in terms of implications for practice in relation to that, I have to say that I'm, I'm, I obviously we need to see what the detail says and, and know how it kind of pans out, what the wording is. We need to see what the guidance is in the code of practice in due course. I think my slight concern would be that certainly um, from my experience, particularly recently, I hear a lot of people talking about because actually it's quite difficult sometimes to find a bed that people are actually poorlier when they are admitted and actually they may be discharged earlier rather than remaining in hospital for a longer period, I know, which is part of the concern addressed by the white paper. So it seems to me that a lot of the solution around a lot of that might be in relation to resources, which of course is also planned and spelt out to some degree and has been highlighted by the Law Society as well. So I have to say I remain slightly unconvinced, if that's the right word, as to how the tightening up particularly the detention criteria is going to impact in practice, Um, really probably relying on resource implications or resources to be there to keep people well out of hospital and to facilitate their safer discharge. I appreciate there's an issue raised about the so-called, I think as the white paper describes it, warehousing of people where they remain in hospital longer than there might be a therapeutic benefit to that. And again, obviously, that's a concern and a concern that is being addressed by the criteria. Again, though, in my experience, that might be more to do with adequate community resource to discharge the person to rather than a desire to keep them in hospital. So I guess concern would be to what degree this the change really needs to come from kind of resource and the right resource in the right places as opposed to tightening of legal criteria on that. But but obviously, laudable aims with that. So I think, Paul, in terms of the tightening and restriction of the effect of the Mental Health Act, we see that through the treatment provisions as well. I know that's one of the issues that, that you've picked out to think about. 
We do, yeah. And there are significant changes proposed when it comes to the treatment provisions in part four of the Act. Uh, the White Paper says that the aim of the uh, proposed changes is to give patients greater control over their care and treatment and the right to refuse specific medical treatments at a much earlier point in detention. The way that it goes about this is by separating treatment out into three categories, which are familiar. They haven't been categorised in quite this way before, but they are familiar to us from the Act as we have it. So first of all, category one is the most invasive treatments, for example, neurosurgery. We have category two, invasive treatments, uh, which would include ECT. And then category three, the broadest, would be all other medical treatment for mental disorder, and that will include medication over the longer term. So we know that neurosurgery and invasive treatments such as ECT already have special rules applied to them. No need rules for neurosurgery, but a tightening of the criteria for invasive treatments such as ECT where a person without capacity refuses and those wishes are to be overridden. So that can only now be done under these proposals with court approval. So there's a tightening there. But the most significant tightening of the rules really concerns that third category, which would include medication. And this is where uh, the person objects to receiving the treatment in question. There's a significant change here when it comes to second opinion certification by the SOAD. At the moment, treatments in this category can be administered for three months without the need for the person's consent, even though uh, they may have capacity. So that can be overridden without the need for SOAD certification. But the SOAD certification under these proposals would be brought forward in time from three months to day 14 of detention under Section 3. So that's quite a significant change where the person is objecting to that treatment. And it means there's going to be a very significantly increased need for second opinion doctors uh, to be available to certify treatments. So that's a very significant change indeed. There's a big focus on taking into account the detained person's wishes and feelings in respect of their treatment. So the, the white paper sets out proposals for new advanced choice documents, which, and I'm going to quote the white paper here. So these will, it says, enable people to set out in advance the care and treatment they would prefer and any treatments they wish to refuse in the event that they are detained under the Act and lack the relevant capacity to express their views at the time. So it's quite a familiar concept in terms of advanced preferences and advanced refusals of treatment, but it has to be said the legal effects of these remains a little unclear. So the White Paper says it will be a legal requirement that these advanced choice documents are considered when a patient's care and treatment plan is developed. But what that means in terms of consideration and how that will impact upon subsequent judgments around treatment is still unclear. So uh, I think there's a, a, some clarity that's going to be needed there and no doubt views will be expressed in response to this consultation. A final point to make around treatment is there's going to be an increased role of the tribunal or rather a new role for the tribunal in looking at uh, the treatment that's provided. So at the moment, the, the tribunal has no jurisdiction over the treatment itself, save to satisfy itself that appropriate treatment is available. But there's now going to be a power uh, proposed by the government for patients to be able to challenge specific treatments through the tribunal by making an application uh, in order to challenge the treatment itself. So pulling all of that together, uh, where does that leave us in practice? Well, I, I think we have to say as well, there are laudable aims in terms of taking into account advanced wishes and advanced preferences when it comes to treatment, although the effect of that still remains a little unclear. Big impact on resources, though, when it comes to demand for second opinions, and so add involvement, and also tribunal hearings, uh, there are going to be more of them, and uh, they're likely to become increasingly complex. So a big impact there in terms of resource.
So those are some of the proposed changes in terms of safeguards. Now, another one concerns the nominated person, doesn't it, Helen? And I think you're going to focus on that for us now. So, yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, in relation to the nominated person, um, I suspect that one of the reasons for picking this as one of the top issues for me is because this is one of the, I think, obvious issues that we need legislation to amend. So the nominated person to replace the nearest relative, which, of course, has been around since the Mental Health Act was first introduced and has given rise to all kinds of issues in terms of human rights considerations and the weird and wonderful provisions and the results that sometimes it throws up, whereby the oldest person in the care home is the nearest relative, etc. So I think it has to be good news. And indeed, it was one of the provisions that there seemed to be the least argument about back in prior to 2007, when the the last major amendments were introduced. So I'm not entirely sure why it wasn't replaced at that point. But at last, it looks like we will have the nearest relative with its weird and wonderful hierarchical Section 26 appointment provisions replaced with the nominated person. So the basic idea is that rather than having a nearest relative imposed on you through the application of a list and descending order of priority, in the future, the person service user will be able to choose their own nominated person to act as a safeguard for them at the point of detention. So it will be the right to choose who the nominated person is and indeed to choose not to have one if you have capacity. If you lack capacity, however, it will be down to the AMP to appoint an interim nominated person until such time as you gain or regain capacity and can make your own choice. And the advanced choice document that Paul was talking about before in the context of treatment will be relevant here as well. So that can be a mechanism by which the service user can identify who should be their nominated person. So I think, you know, good news there. I think the only slight issue for me will be, I'm not entirely sure what restrictions there might be. And and I think there, in reality, will need to be some kind of safeguards and provisions around that, presumably. The other issue for me would be actually whether the person, service user at the point of detention will have capacity or not. And the fact that it may well fall fairly frequently then to the AMPS to identify an interim nominated person. In terms of the role then, and I think, again, you know, good that the role is strengthened insofar as we make sure the right person is the nominated person, i.e. the person that the service user has chosen to represent them. Uh, so there will be a beefing up of the nominated person role compared with the nearest relative role. So in addition to retaining the rights that the nearest relative currently has, there will be additional rights for the nominated person. And that will include the right to object to a person being placed in a CTO, the right to be consulted in relation to transfer, the right to be involved in care and treatment plans and discussions around those, the plans that Paul was talking about before in context of treatment, the right to be consulted prior to renewals and extensions. And also, uh, again, Paul flagging the additional role of the tribunal there in relation to treatment the right where the service user lacks capacity to apply to the tribunal to challenge a treatment decision on the service user's behalf as well. And the other point to note is that whereas currently restricted patients don't have a nearest relative, they will have a nominated person. The other key bit I think to mention is that the slightly cumbersome Section 29 displacement process where the nearest relative objects to the Section 3, which they will still be entitled to do, and of course a CTO, 
that displacement process going through the court will be replaced by a tribunal application not to displace the nominated person but to override that specific decision. So hopefully good news in practice in terms of getting rid of all those complications about nearest relative and the nearest relative concerns where that person isn't a suitable person and the whole human rights concerns that have grown out of that. I guess, again, the devil will be in the details somewhat with that. But I think I think good news in terms of enhancing safeguards. And again, greater focus in safeguards and not just in the tribunal role that Paul's mentioned already in relation to treatment, but also Paul in relation to tribunal access and advocacy generally. That's right. And so uh, there's going to be, or what's proposed is um, access to an enhanced form of advocacy now. So we'll see where this leads. But um, one proposal which is interesting is that IMHAs, who already exist, of course, and already provide advocacy under the Act, would have their roles expanded, including the right to challenge treatment on behalf of the person and also to make a tribunal application on the person's behalf. So that's a new role for them in relation to uh, those forms of challenges. The hospital managers have been a little bit under a cloud since the um, the Wesley report a couple of years ago, upon which this white paper is largely based. So the review undertaken by Sir Simon Wesley recommended removing the role of uh, the hospital managers when it came to discharging patients. And that was uh, based on concerns around their effectiveness and uh, also the lack of formality uh, surrounding their meetings. So the government's listened to those concerns, but hasn't actually decided to do away with the hospital managers at this point, certainly not with regard to their role in discharge. But instead, what's going to happen is further consultation. So the question is asked as to whether there should be a future for the managers in taking these decisions. So the jury's very much out. They, they remain still, I suppose, under something of a cloud. But there's an opportunity to feed into the consultation and give views as to whether they should remain in that role. When it comes to tribunals, so we've already mentioned a couple of new proposals with regard to tribunals. There are going to be more tribunal hearings if these proposals are brought into effect through legislation, not least because of increased rights to apply to the tribunal. So for those under Section 2, at the moment you can apply within the first 14 days of detention, but that would be extended to 21 days, so an additional seven days in which to make an application. For those under Section 3, in the first year of Section 3 detention, there will be three opportunities to appeal to the tribunal rather than two. So instead of the first opportunity being at six months, it would be at three months. And then again, you could apply at six and at 12. In terms of automatic referrals for those who do not uh, make an application, then there's going to be further consultation questions are set out in the white paper as to what the increased frequency of automatic referral to the tribunal might be. And the question is put as to whether those are sensible timescales. So we'd recommend that you look at the white paper in terms of what's proposed there. The white paper does recognise that that would creating an increased resource burden in addition to the uh, increased resources in the tribunal that are going to be required anyway. So um, it proposes a phased implementation of any increased frequency of automatic referrals. But nonetheless, it's there as a proposal uh, and it's there for consultation for the time being. So in any response, uh, you can express your views. The tribunal will also have more powers in respect of treatment. So for the first time, they'll be able to look at the treatment uh, and determine any challenges to the treatment that the person's receiving. And as we've said already, an IMHA will have the right to make an application on the person's behalf. So more tribunals, more complex tribunals and big resource issues for the tribunal service and frankly for anyone involved in tribunal hearings. So that absolutely includes the clinicians on the ground who are going to find themselves in tribunal more often.
So still on the tribunal, one element of the process that's been clarified concerns conditional discharges. Helen, what do we see about this? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So again, one of the other issues that I've picked to highlight, again, is one of those issues that we, we need legislative change, and that should be the fix that we've been waiting for, as it were. So that's in relation to the tribunals and the issue that is the conditional discharge of somebody who still requires to be deprived of their liberty in the community in order for their community care package to be safely delivered. So we've had quite a problem, and I think one of the reasons for me identifying or highlighting this particular issue is that although I appreciate it is a more specialist area, and there may be many people out there working with the Mental Health Act, experiencing the Mental Health Act, who won't come across this, but where it does arise, it causes some fairly substantial problems. So the problem has been around for a few years now, starting with the RB case and then, I guess, being enhanced somewhat by the Cheshire West case. So the issue being that the tribunal cannot conditionally discharge somebody to conditions that amount to a deprivation of liberty, regardless of their capacity or their consent. And that's led to a particular issue in relation to those who have capacity and therefore couldn't have a care plan authorised by the Court of Protection in that effectively they they become stuck in hospital or uh, in certain circumstances where they were conditionally discharged with care plans that are a deprivation of liberty that were lawful when made but are no longer lawful then that leads to some really tricky issues in terms of how to continue to safely manage and keep that person in the community uh, via various mechanisms including section 17 technical and enhanced leave so The good news then is that the proposal is there in the white paper to hopefully fix that problem from a legal perspective. So the law will be changed to enable the tribunals to do what is called a supervised discharge, which isn't the old fashioned sort, of course, it was replaced by CTOs many years ago now, but a new form presumably of conditional discharge. So the supervised discharge enables the person to be discharged by the tribunals with conditions that do amount to deprivation of liberty regardless of their capacity, where there is no therapeutic benefit for the person to remain in hospital any longer, but the level of risk requires a deprivation of liberty, so that the supervised discharge, the deprivation in the community, is the least restrictive option. And that will be subject to an annual tribunal review as well. So I think certainly good news and and certainly uh, the sooner the better, I think, for this fix to happen, because I appreciate it might be a fairly sort of specialist issue and maybe less relevant for very many people. But where it does apply, then it causes some real legal problems. So that would be my final issue just to raise for today's purposes. And if that kind of solves to some degree that specific deprivation of liberty in the community issue, Paul, that still leaves the conundrum that is the deprivation of liberty in hospital and the kind of Mental Health Act, Mental Capacity Act plus DOLS or LPS in the future interface. So I know, Paul, you've been looking at that one. I have, and it's a joy. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> this is an issue we always struggle with. It's, here it is at the, at the climax of our podcast. So deprivation of liberty in hospital is a, co- it's a complex issue, and it's one that this white paper essentially parks for now subject to further consultation and and subject to seeing as well how other changes in legislation, specifically the new LPS, the Liberty Protection Safeguards, play out. So the question, of course, is how to authorise deprivation of liberty in hospital for those who lack mental capacity. The options at the moment are either the Mental Health Act, the use of the detention provisions, or alternatively, the Mental Capacity Act. At the moment, the deprivation of liberty safeguards, or in future, as of April 
next year all being well, the new liberty protection safeguards. So the interface between the two, the Mental Health Act and the Mental Capacity Act provisions is complex. It's frequently misunderstood. It's an area that we find very challenging in practice. And uh, what the white paper does is supports a clearer dividing line between the Mental Health Act on the one hand and the Mental Capacity Act on the other hand. So that would have to be set down in legislation and it would be based upon whether or not the person in hospital is objecting to being there and to receiving treatment there. So if there is an objection, that would result in detention under the Mental Health Act in order to authorise the deprivation of their liberty. If there is no objection, the default position would be the Mental Capacity Act, so the DOLS or the LPS, as the case may be, presumably LPS, because it's going to take a while for any new provisions, any new mental health legislation to be enacted. And it is proposed when it comes to ascertaining objection that there could perhaps be a statutory period of up to around 72 hours or so during which a person's objection could be assessed in hospital before then the decision is taken as to which way to fall in terms of the, uh, the legislation to be used to authorise the ongoing deprivation of liberty. Now, that's what's set out in the white paper. That all sounds very interesting. Of course, the the difficulty is that's not what the liberty protection safeguards say. So we have a, a slight clash between what's proposed here and what's in the LPS. In the LPS, the current interface regime under the deprivation of liberty safeguards is essentially carried forward with there being the potential for somebody to be detained either under the Mental Health Act or subject to the LPS when they're not objecting. So there's a slight difference there. There's not that clear dividing line between the two regimes. The white paper, though, is that it doesn't seek to resolve this for now, although it, it proposes a clearer dividing line. What it proposes to do first is to see how the LPS beds in see how the new provisions under the LPS change the position on the ground, and then a view can be taken as to whether there's a need for further reform. And in the meantime, it asks the question of consultees as to how the law could be changed to better define the dividing line between the Mental Health Act and the Mental Capacity Act. So more to follow in this area. It is a challenging area, and there's going to be more debate around it as time moves forward. So those are our six issues that we wanted to raise with you. In terms of next steps, well, it's all going to take a while yet before we see any legislation. So this white paper is out for consultation at the moment. Responses will be received over the coming weeks. The government will have to respond, of course, to the, the consultation responses. And then in due course, there will be a mental health bill introduced. We do not know when at the moment the white paper simply says that it will be when parliamentary time allows. So no clear time scales for this at the moment. In the meantime, you can, of course, make your views count. You can get your voices heard by responding to the consultation and the specific questions that are set out in the white paper. We'd encourage you to do so. And in the meantime, we will keep you updated on developments. So watch this space. Thank you very much for joining us for this edition of Lawcast. Thanks for listening.